Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God, the private revelation of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus, which extends from the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closes with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus for the sake of the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of World War II, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published without her name shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share this lost treasure with the world. I hope you will enjoy them as much as I have. And if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the Man God, Book 1, Number 109, Jesus at Dora's House, Death of Jonah. I see once again the plain of Esdralon by day, a cloudy late November day, It must have rained during the night, one of the first rains of the dreary winter months, because the earth is damp, but not muddy, and it is windy, a damp wind that blows away the yellow leaves and pierces one's bones with its breath saturated with moisture. In the fields, there are a few yokes of oxen plowing. They laboriously turn the rich, heavy soil of this fertile plain, preparing it for seed time. And what upsets me is to see that in some places it is the men themselves that work as oxen, pushing the plowshare with all the strength of their arms, and even with their chests, pressing their feet in the soil already turned, toiling like slaves in this work which is very hard also for robust bulls. Also, Jesus looks and notices, and his face turns so sad as to weep. The disciples, only eleven, because Judas is still absent and the shepherds are no longer here, speak among themselves, and Peter says, Also a boat is small, poor, and laborious, but it is one hundred times better than this pack-animal job. He then asks, Are they perhaps Doris's servants? Simon Zealot replies, I don't think so. His fields are beyond that orchard, I think, and we can't see them yet. But Peter, always curious, leaves the road and walks along the hedge between the two fields. Four thin peasants, wet with perspiration, have sat down for a moment on its borders. They are panting with fatigue. Peter asks them, Are you Doris's men? No, but we belong to his relative, to Johannan. And who are you? I am Simon of Jonas, a fisherman of Galilee until the moon of Siv. Now I am Peter of Jesus of Nazareth the Messiah of the Gospel. Peter says so with the respect and glory with which one would say, I belong to the high divine Caesar of Rome, and much more, too. His honest face is shining with joy in professing himself of Jesus. Oh, the Messiah? Where is he? asked the four unhappy men. That one over there, the tall, fair-headed one, clad in dark red, the one who is now looking here and is smiling, waiting for me. Oh, if we went there, would he send us away? Send you away? Why? He is the friend of the unhappy, the poor, the oppressed, and I think that you, yes, you are just them. 
we are indeed. But not like Doris's men. At least we have as much bread as we want, and we are not lashed unless we stop working. But so that if the fine master Johannan should find you here talking, he, he would lash us more than he would lash his dogs. Peter whistles significantly. Then he says, Well, it is better if we do this. And cupping his hands to his mouth, he calls out loud, Master, come here. There are some hearts that are suffering, and they want you. But what are you saying? Him to come here? But we are ignoble servants. The four men are terrified at such boldness. But lashes are not pleasant, and if that fine Pharisee should turn up, I would not like to have a share myself, Peter says, laughing, and with his big hand he shakes the most terrified of the four men. Jesus, with his long stride, is about to arrive. The four men do not know what to do. They would like to run and to meet him, but they are paralyzed with respect, poor beings completely frightened by human wickedness. They fall flat on their faces, adoring the Messiah who is coming towards them. Peace to all those who desire me. Who desires me desires good, and I love him as a friend. Get up. Who are you? But the four just lift their faces off the ground and remain kneeling and quiet. Peter explains. They are four servants of the Pharisee Johannan, a relative of Doris. They would like to speak to you, but if he comes, there will be a volley of blows. That is why I said to you, come. Get up, boys. He will not eat you. Have faith. Just think that he is a friend of yours. We, we know about you. Jo Jonah told us. I have come for him. I know that he announced me. What do you know of me? That you are the Messiah, that he saw you as a baby, that the angels sang peace to good people with your coming, that you were persecuted, that you were saved, and that now you have been looking for your shepherds, and you love them. These last things he told us now, and we thought, if he is so good as to look for some shepherds and love them, he would certainly be also a little fond of us, we need so much someone who may love us. I love you. Do you suffer much? Oh, but Doris's men even more. If Johannan found us talking here, but today he is at Gergesa. He has not yet come back from the Feast of the Tabernacles, but his steward this evening will give us food after measuring the work that we have done. But it does not matter. We will not rest for our meal at the sixth hour, and we will make up for this time. Tell me, man, would I be able to work that implement? Is it a difficult task? asks Peter. No, it is not difficult, but it is hard work. It takes a lot of strength. I have that. Show me. If I succeed, you can talk, and I will play the ox. You, John, Andrew, and James, come to the lesson. We will abandon fish for the worms of the soil. Come on. Peter lays his hands on the crossbar of the beam. There are two men at each plow one on each side of the long beam. He looks and imitates all the gestures of the peasant. Strong as he is and rested, he works well, and the man praises him. I am a master in plowing, happily exclaims good old Peter. Come on, John, come here. An ox and a bull calf at each plow. James and that mute calf of my brother at the other one. Right, heave away and the two plows proceed side by side, turning the soil and cutting furrows in the long field at the end of which they turn around and cut a fresh furrow. They seem to have worked as farmers all their lives. 
How good your friends are, says the boldest of Johanan's servants. Did you make them such? I have guided their goodness, as you do with the pruner's shears. Goodness was already in them. It now blossoms well, because there is who takes care of it. They are also humble. They are your friends, and yet they are serving us, poor servants, like that. Only those who love humility, meekness, continence, honesty, and love, above all love, can stay with me, because who loves God and his neighbor possesses in consequence all virtues and gains heaven. Shall we be able to gain it too, we who have no time to pray, to go to the temple, not even to raise our heads off the furrows? Tell me, do you hate him who deals with you so hard? Is there in you rebellion and reproach to God for putting you amongst the lowest of the earth? Oh, no, master, it is our fate. But when tired, we throw ourselves on our pallets. We say, well, the God of Abraham knows that we are so exhausted that we are not able to say more than blessed be the Lord. And we also say, also today we have lived without sinning. You know, we could also cheat a little and eat a fruit with our bread or pour some oil onto the boiled vegetables. But the master said, bread and vegetables are sufficient for servants, and at harvest time a little vinegar in the water to quench their thirst and give them strength. And we do that. After all, we could be worse off. And I solemnly tell you that the God of Abraham smiles at your hearts, whilst he turns a severe face towards those who insult him in the temple with false prayers while they do not love their fellows. Oh! But they love people like themselves. At least, it looks as if they do, because they respect one another with gifts and vows. It is for us that they have no love, but we are different from them, and it is fair. No, it is not fair in my Father's kingdom, but different will be the way of judging. Not the rich and the mighty ones, as such, will receive honors, but only those who have always loved God, loving Him above themselves and above everything else, such as money, power, women, a bountiful table, and loving their fellow men, that is, all men, both rich and poor, well-known and unknown, learned and without culture, good and bad. Yes, you must love also bad people, not because of their wickedness, but out of pity for their souls, which they would wound to death. It is necessary to love them, imploring the Celestial Father to cure them and redeem them, in the kingdom of heaven, those will be blessed who have honored the Lord with truth and justice, who have loved their parents and relatives out of respect, those who have not stolen anything in any way, that is, who have given and exacted what is just, also in the work of servants, those who have not killed any reputation or creature, and have not desired to kill even when the behavior of other people is so cruel as to excite hearts to disdain and rebellion, those who have not sworn falsehood, damaging one's neighbor and the truth, those who have not committed adultery or any carnal sin, those who, being mild and resigned, have always accepted their lot without envying others. Of those is the kingdom of heaven, and also a beggar can be a happy king up there, whereas a tetrarch, with all his power, will be less than nothing, nay, more than nothing, he will be a prey to mammon if he has sinned against the eternal law of the Decalogue. The men listened to him, gaping. Near Jesus there are Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, 
Philip, Thomas, James, and Judas of Alphaeus. The other four continue working, red in their faces and hot, but cheerful. Peter is quite enough to keep them all merry. Oh, how right Jonah was in calling you holy. Everything is holy in you, your words, your look, your smile. We have never felt our souls thus. Have you not seen Jonah for a long time? Since he has been ill. Ill? Yes, master, he cannot stand it any more. He was already dragging himself along before, but after the summer work and the vintage, he is unable to stand up. And yet that makes him work. Oh, you say that we must love everybody, but it is very difficult to love hyenas. And Doris is worse than a hyena. Jonah loves him. Yes, master. And I say that he is a saint like those who have been martyred because of their loyalty to the Lord our God. You have spoken the truth. What is your name? Micah, and this is Saul, and this is Joel Hell, and this is Isaiah. I will mention your names to the Father. And you were saying that Jonah is very ill? Yes, as soon as he finishes his work, he throws himself on the straw, and we don't see him. The other servants of Doris tell us. Will he be working now? Yes, if he can stand up. He should be beyond that apple orchard. Was Doris's harvest a good one? Yes, it was famous all over the area. The plants had to be propped up owing to the miraculous size of the fruit, and Doris had to have new vats made because there were so many grapes that the usual ones could not contain them. Doris must have rewarded his servant. Rewarded? Oh, Lord, how little you know of him. But Jonah told me that years ago Doris thrashed him to death for the loss of a few bunches and that he became a slave through debt because his master blamed him for the loss of a few crops. Since this year he had a miraculous abundance, he should have given him a prize. No, he lashed him savagely, accusing him of not having the same abundance in past years because he had not taken due care of the land. But that man is a beast, exclaims Matthew. No, he is soulless, says Jesus. I leave you, my sons, with a blessing. Have you bread and food for today? We have this bread, and they show him a dark loaf which they take out of a sack lying on the ground. Take my food. I have but this, but I am staying at Doris's today, and you at Doris's house? Yes, to ransom Jonah. Did you not know? No one knows anything here, but distrust him, master. You are like a lamb in the wolf's den. He will not be able to do me any harm. Take my food. James, give them what we have. Also your wine. You must rejoice a little, too, my poor friends, both your souls and your bodies. Peter, let us go. I am coming, master. There is only this furrow to cut. And he runs to Jesus, his face drawn with fatigue. He dries himself with the mantle he had taken off, puts it on again, and he laughs happily. The four men cannot thank them enough. Will you pass by here again, master? Yes, wait for me. You will say goodbye to Jonah. Can you do that? Oh, yes. The field is to be plowed by evening. More than two-thirds has been done. How well and quickly. Your friends are strong. May God bless you. Today, for us, is a greater feast than Passover. Oh, may God bless you all. Jesus goes straight to the apple orchard. They cross it and reach Doris's field. 
Other peasants are at the plows or are bent down removing all the loose herbs from the furrows, but Jonah is not there. The men recognize Jesus and salute him without leaving their work. Where is Jonah? he asks. After two hours he fell on the furrow and has been taken home. Poor Jonah. He will not have to suffer long now. He is nearing his end. We shall never have a better friend. You have me on the earth and him in Abraham's bosom. The dead love the living with a double love, their own and the love they obtain by being with God, therefore a perfect love. Oh, go to him at once, that he may see you in his suffering. Jesus blesses and goes away. What are you going to do now? What will you say to Doris? asked the disciples. I will go as if I knew nothing. If he sees that he is being met fairly and squarely, he may be pitiless towards Jonah and the servants. Your friend is right. He is a jackal, says Peter to Simon. Lazarus speaks nothing but the truth, and he is not a backbiter. You will meet him, and you will like him, replies Simon Zealot. The house of the Pharisee can be seen, large now, but well built, in the middle of an orchard now fruitless, a country house, but rich and comfortable. Peter and Simon go ahead to warn. Doris comes out, an old man with the hard profile of a rapacious person, Ironic eyes, a serpent's mouth, wriggling a false smile and a beard more white than black. Hail, Jesus, he greets informally and with obvious condescension. Jesus does not say peace. He replies, may your salutation return to you. Come in, my house receives you. You have been as punctual as a king. As an honest person, replies Jesus. Doris laughs as if it was a joke. Jesus turns round and says to his disciples, who had not been invited, Come in. They are my friends. I'll let them come in. But isn't that one the excise man, the son of Alphaeus? That is Matthew, the disciple of Christ, says Jesus in a tone that the other understands, and he gives a laugh more forced than before. Doris would like to crush the poor Galilean master under the wealth of his house, which is sumptuous inside. Sumptuous and icy. The servants seem like slaves. They walk with bent shoulders, stealing away swiftly, always afraid of punishment. One feels that the house is dominated by cold-heartedness and hatred. But Jesus cannot be crushed by a display of wealth or by reminding him of one's wealth and relatives in Doris who understands the indifference of the master, takes him to his orchard garden, showing him rare plants and offering him their fruits, which servants bring on golden trays and cups. Jesus enjoys and praises the delicious fruit, partly preserved as a julep, and they are beautiful peaches, partly in their natural state, and they are pears of a rare size. I am the only one to have them in Palestine, and I don't think that there are any in the whole peninsula. I sent for them to Persia and even farther away. The caravan cost me as much as a talent, but not even the tetrarchs have such fruits. Perhaps not even Caesar has them. I count all the fruits, and I want their stones. And the pears are to be eaten only at my table, because I do not want even one seed to be taken away. I send some to Annas, but only cooked ones, so that they are sterile. But they are plants of God, and all men are equal, says Jesus. Equal? No. 
I equal to, to your Galileans. Souls come from God and he creates them equal. But I am Doris, the faithful Pharisee. He looks as proud as a peacock in saying so. Jesus darts a glance at him with his sapphire eyes, which are becoming brighter and brighter, a sign that denotes oncoming pity or severity. Jesus is so much taller than Doris and towers over him, stately in his purple tunic, near the small, slightly bent Pharisee, wrinkled in a garment strikingly wide and rich in fridges. Doris, after some time of self-admiration, exclaims, Jesus, why did you send Lazarus, the brother of a prostitute, to the house of Doris, the pure Pharisee? Is Lazarus your friend? You must not do that. Don't you know that he is an, an anathematized because his sister Mary is a prostitute? I know, but Lazarus and his deeds are honest. But the world remembers the sin of that house and sees that its stains spread to its friends. Don't go there. Why are you not a Pharisee? If you wish, I am influential. I will have you accepted, although you are a Galilean. I can do anything in the Sanhedrin. Annas is in my hands, like the edge of my mantle. People would be more afraid of you. I want only to be loved. I will love you. You can see that I already love you, because I am yielding to your wish, and I am giving you Jonah. I paid for him. True, and I am surprised that you can afford to pay so much. Not I. A friend paid for me. Well, well, I am not inquisitive. I say, you see that I love you, and I want to make you happy. You will have Jonah after our meal. It is only for you that I make this sacrifice. And he laughs his cruel laughter. Jesus starts a more and more severe glance at him, his arms folded on his chest. They are still in the orchard garden, awaiting mealtime. But you must make me happy. A joy for a joy. I am giving you my best servant. I am therefore depriving myself of something useful for the future. This year your blessing, I know that you were here at the beginning of summer, has given me crops which have made my farms famous. Now bless my herds and my fields. Next year I will not regret the loss of Jonah, and in the meantime I will find someone like him. Come and bless Give me the joy of being celebrated throughout Palestine and having folds and granaries full of all sorts of good things. Come! And he grasps Jesus and tries to drag him, overwhelmed by gold fever. But Jesus resists. Where is Jonah? he asks severely. Where they are plowing. He wanted to do that also for his good master, but before the meal is over he will come in the meantime, come and bless the herds, the fields, the orchards, the vineyards, the oil mills. Bless everything. Oh, how fruitful they will be next year. Come then. Where is Jonah? asked Jesus in a louder, thundering voice. I told you where they are plowing. He is the first servant and does not work. He is at the head of the men. Liar. Me? I swear it by Jehovah. Perjurer. Me? I? A perjurer? I am the most faithful believer. Watch how you speak. Killer. Jesus has been raising his voice louder all the time, and this last word is like thunder. His disciples go near him. Servants look out of doors, frightened. Jesus' face is unendurable in its severity. 
phosphorescent rays seem to be emanating from his eyes. Doris is frightened for a moment. He shrinks, a bundle of fine cloth near the tall person of Jesus, clad in a dark red woolen tunic. Then his pride prevails, and he shouts with his squeaky voice like a fox, "'Only I give orders in my house. Get out, vile Galilean!' I will go out after cursing you, your fields, herds, and vineyards, for this year and the years to come. No, don't. Yes, it's true. Jonah is ill, but he is being taken care of. He is well looked after. Withdraw your curse. Where is Jonah? Let a servant lead me to him at once. I paid for him, and since he is a piece of merchandise, a machine for you, I consider him as such. And since I purchased him, I want him. Doris pulls out a gold whistle from his chest and blows it three times. A group of servants, both of the house and of the fields, come out from everywhere. They run near the dreaded master, bowing down so deeply that they seem to be crawling. Bring Jonah to him and hand him over. Where are you going? Jesus does not even answer. He follows the servants who have rushed beyond the garden towards the peasants' dwellings, the filthy holes of the poor peasants. They enter Jonah's hovel. He is only skin and bones now and is panting, half naked because of a high temperature, on a cane mat where the mattress is a patched-up garment and the blanket an even more worn-out mantle. The same woman as last time is looking after him as best she can. Jonah, my friend, I have come to take you away. You, my lord, I am dying, but I am happy to have you here. My faithful friend, you are now free and you will not die here. I am taking you to my house. Free? Why? To your house? Oh, yes, you did promise me that I would see your mother. Jesus is most loving, bending over the miserable bed of the unhappy man, and Jonah seems to be recovering on account of his joy. Peter, you are strong. Lift up Jonah and you. Give your mantles. This bed is too hard for one in his state. The disciples take off their mantles at once. They fold them several times and lay them on the mat, using some as pillows. Peter lays down his load of bones, and Jesus covers him with his own mantle. Peter, have you got any money? Yes, master. I have forty coins. Good. Let us go. Cheer up, Jonah. A little more trouble, and then there will be so much peace in my house, near Mary. Mary, yes, oh, your house. In his extreme weakness, poor Jonah weeps. He can but weep. Goodbye, woman. The Lord will bless you for your mercy. Goodbye, Lord. Goodbye, Jonah. Pray for me. The young woman is weeping. When they are out the door, Doris appears. Jonah makes a gesture of fear and covers his face, but Jesus lays a hand on his head and goes out beside him, more stern than a judge. The unhappy procession goes out into the rustic yard and takes the orchard path. That bed is mine. I told, I sold the servant, not the bed. Jesus throws the purse at his feet without saying a word. Doris picks up the purse and empties it. Forty coins and five didrachmas? It is too little. Jesus looks the greedy, revolting torturer up and down, but does not reply. It is impossible to say what his gesture means. 
At least tell me that you are withdrawing the anathema. Jesus crushes him once again with a glare and a few words. I entrust you to God of Sinai, and goes past upright beside the rustic litter which Peter and Andrew are carrying most cautiously. When Dora sees that it is all to no good, that the punishment is certain, he shouts, We will meet again, Jesus. I will have you in my clutches again. I will fight you to death. You can take that worn-out man. I no longer need him. I will save his burial money. Go away. Go, cursed Satan. I will set the whole Sanhedrin on you, Satan. Satan. Jesus feigns that he does not hear. The disciples are dismayed. Jesus attends only to Jonah. He looks for the smoothest and most sheltered paths until they reach a crossroad near Johanna's field. The four peasants run to say goodbye to their friend who was leaving and to Jesus who was blessing. But the road from Esdralon to Nazareth is a long one, and they cannot proceed speedily because of their pitiful load. There is no wagon or cart along the main road. There is nothing. They proceed in silence. Jonah seems to be sleeping, but he holds on to Jesus' hand. Towards evening, a military Roman wagon catches up with them. In the name of God, stop, says Jesus, lifting his arm. The two soldiers stop from under the cover pulled over the wagon as it has started raining, peeps out a pompous, non-commissioned officer. What do you want? he asked Jesus. I have a dying friend. I ask you to take him into the wagon. We are not allowed, but get on. We are not dogs either. The litter is lifted into the wagon. Your friend? Who are you? Rabbi Jesus of Nazareth. You? Oh. The non-commissioned officer looks at him curiously. If it is you, then get on as many as you can, but don't let anyone see you. It is an order, but above orders there is also humanity, isn't there? You are good, I know. Eh, we soldiers know everything. How do I know? Even stones speak well or evil, and we have ears to listen to them in order to serve Caesar. You are not a false Christ like the others before you, who were agitators and rebels. You are good. Rome knows. This man is very ill. That is why I am taking him to my mother. Huh, she won't cure him for long. Give him some wine. It's in that canteen. Aquila, whip the horses. Quintus, give me the ration of honey and butter. It's mine. It will do him good. He has a cough, and honey will help. You are good, says Jesus. No, not quite so bad as many. And I am happy to have you here with me. Remember Publius Quintilianus of the Italica Legion. I stay at Caesarea, but I am now going to Ptolemy's inspection order. You are not my enemy. I? I am an enemy of bad people, never of good people, and I would like to be good, too. Tell me, what doctrine do you preach for us military people? The doctrine is one only for everybody. Justice, honesty, continence, compassion. One must do one's duty without any abuses. Also, in the hard necessities of the army, one must be human. And one must endeavor to know the truth, that is, God, one in eternal, without which knowledge every action is deprived of grace and consequently of eternal reward. But when I am dead, what will I do with the good I have done? 
who comes to the true God will find that good in the next life. Am I going to be born again? Will I become a tribute or even an emperor? No, you will become like God, being united to his eternal beatitude in heaven. What, me in Olympus, amongst the gods? There are no gods. There is the true God, the one I preach, the one who hears you and notes your goodness and your desire to know the good. I like that. I did not know that God could be concerned with a poor heathen soldier. He created you, Publius. He therefore loves you and would like to have you with himself. Eh, why not? But no one ever speaks to us of God. I will come to Caesarea and you will hear me. Oh, yes, I will come to hear you. There is Nazareth. I would like to serve you further. But if they see me, I will get off and I bless you for your kindness. Hail, master. May the Lord show himself to you, soldiers. Goodbye. They get off and resume walking. In a short while you will be able to rest, Jonah, says Jesus encouragingly. Jonah smiles. He becomes calmer and calmer as night falls, now that he is sure that he is far from Doris. John and his brother run ahead to inform Mary, and when the little procession arrives in Nazareth, almost deserted in the late evening, Mary is already at the door awaiting her son. Mother, here is Jonah. He is taking shelter under your kindness to begin enjoying his paradise. Are you happy, Jonah? Happy, happy, whispers the exhausted man as if he were in ecstasy. He is taken into the little room where Joseph died. You are in my father's bed, and here is my mother, and I am here. See, Nazareth becomes Bethlehem, and you are now the little Jesus between two people who love you, and these are the ones who venerate you as a faithful servant. You cannot see the angels, but they are waving their bright wings above you and are singing the words of the Christmas psalm. Jesus pours all his kindness on poor Jonah, who is getting worse from one second to the next. He seems to have resisted so far to die here, but he is happy. He smiles and tries to kiss Jesus' hand and Mary's, and to say, but his anguish interrupts his words. Mary comforts him like a mother, and he repeats, yes. Yes, with a blissful smile on his emaciated face. The disciples, standing at the kitchen garden entrance, are silent and watch, deeply moved. God has listened to your long desire. The star of your long night is now becoming the star of your eternal morning. You know its name, says Jesus. Jesus, yours, oh, Jesus. The angels who will sing the angelical hymn for me. My soul can hear it, but also my ears wish to hear it. Ooh, to make me sleep happy. I am so sleepy. So much work I have done. So many tears. So many insults. Doris, I forgive him, but I do not want to hear his voice, and I hear it. It is like the voice of Satan near me, who am dying. Who will cover that voice for me with the words that come from heaven? It is Mary who, on the same tune as her lullaby, sings softly, Glory to God in highest heaven, and peace to men down here. And she repeats it two or three times, because she sees that Jonah calms down upon hearing it. Doris does not speak any more, he says after some time. Only the angels. It was a child, in a manger, between an ox and a donkey. 
and it was the Messiah, and I adored him. And with him there was Joseph and Mary. His voice fades away in a short gurgle, and then there is silence. Peace in heaven to the man of goodwill. He is dead. We shall bury him in our poor sepulchre. He deserves to await the resurrection of the dead near my just father, says Jesus. And it all ends, while Mary of Alpheus, informed I do not know by whom, is coming in.